oil and gas producers as well as other energy producers are going to be the biggest miners in the world just because they have all this literally wasted energy um, that, that now has a, a mechanism by which it can be turned into a profitable revenue stream on site uh, almost immediately. They've never met a customer like this. No one's coming out there and saying, let me buy your gas. You don't have to build any pipeline to route it anywhere. All I need to do is have like a 15 by 15 square foot plot in the back and I'm gonna monetize this thing that is like a total liability otherwise. All right, all right, everyone. Um, I am here today with Harry uh, Sudok, which I've been Sudok. Sudok. Damn it! I realized I've uh, been pronouncing it wrong for four <laughs> years. That was my attempt at fixing it, and I still botched it. Uh, and also Marty Ben, which is a little bit easier. Uh, so, anyways, guys, great to uh, have you here on this Friday. Thank you for having us. I'm happy to be here. Of course, of course, absolutely. Of course, Thanks, of course. Fun story. I was uh, reminiscing on. Um, First time I met you guys in preparation for this one was I met Marty. I think it was at either at a bar in, in Brooklyn or at Pomp's office. And uh, I basically my takeaway was this guy just drinks whiskey every day and talks about Bitcoin. So I was like, how in the world can I get there? And then Harry, uh, we had a standing biweekly call for like three years. And uh, when we were both pre in the industry. So exactly. This was this was when we were still uh, fiat slaves and um and we're like thinking about leaving like skunk works doing stuff at night. Um, and, and you were like my accountability buddy of, of get out of the fiat world. Yeah, exactly. ASAP. Exactly. I remember I'd like, I was at my old company SciSense. I'd like run into the back room. I was like, would block on my calendar, like work call sales call with Harry. Uh, and my manager's like, who's this Harry guy? Like, can you close this deal already? So anyways, all right, we're, uh, <laughs> we've got an hour here. We're going to jump right into it. I wanted to, um, we're going to talk about mining, all that kind of fun stuff. You guys are legends in the mining space. Harry, there's actually, um, you had this quote when I was doing prep for this. Um, you said that trading and mining are the two most cutthroat businesses in the entire world right now. And I think a lot of people think of like trading, hedge funds, all right, real cutthroat, they understand that. And then they think of mining, which is like, all right, I'm Marty Bent, like I go plug in my little machine and like you know, go have my whiskey, right? So why is what you and Marty are doing, like how is this such a cutthroat industry? Well, so it's zero sum, right? Like, like fundamentally mining right now is a competition for all of the block subsidies and the transaction fees, but because the, the current state of the Bitcoin network um, is so skewed towards block subsidy from a revenue perspective, it's totally zero sum. My terahash that I have online is uh, a slice of the pie that someone else doesn't have. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, mining is this very, very um, pure version of capitalism where every, every innovation and every um, part of effort that you're able to bring to the market is, um, is directly in opposition to other folks competing for the same market share also this huge factor of time decay due to the halvings. So there, so that, you know, a, a petahash that we have online now is way more valuable than a petahash we have online in five years. And so pulling all of that growth and that corporate development into the present away from the future um, is, is uh, asymmetrically rewarded. So there's, there's a speed component that we feel and a sense of urgency to do it now. 
Yeah, it's another thing we say you're in a race against the block height. You want to get those things plugged in at the lowest block height possible. Marty, you're uh, you're pumping your fist. Why does that uh, why does that resonate with you? So that resonates that resonates with me because I I love this idea that um, that the block height is a time chain, right? The time you know, and and that you're rewarded for participating in the time chain as early as humanly possible. And it's this you know, it is this uh, like there. There's there's this idea um, outside of Bitcoin that just you know the the maturity of an industry is directly correlated with your ability to measure it. So you know health and science is like really good because we de- first we developed an X-ray, then we developed an MRI, then we developed a CAT scan. So the the innovation and the ability to provide care was a function of the increasing ability for us to measure. Um, what we've done you know in in capitalism and in markets is, you know, we've been continuously trying to track better and better and better versions of of storing economic value and measuring economic value and utility provided to others. Bitcoin is the best measuring stick in the entire world. And the best part of that measuring stick from a network security um, and an ongoing, um, you know, consensus quality um, is the block height relative to the hash rate? I think I can't. That's the thing coming on podcast with Harry. I can yeah. never. I can never describe anything more eloquently than he can. Following up uh, on an explanation, there's nothing I can add. <laughs> we should just let Harry go on like a 60 minute rant here and just clap our hands. I, I black out. I black out and just yell. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. So like, what does that actually mean? That like, how does that play out in your nine to five jobs? Like, you know, are you both like, well, Marty, we can get into what you're doing in a sec because it's it's quite interesting. But like, is the life of a miner just scouring the world for low cost energy then? It's a combination of that, a combination of many things. There's many moving parts. So yes, obviously it's number one priority on many miners' minds is how do we get that cost of electricity down? So where can I find the cheapest fuel source? For us at Great American Mining, happens to be on oil fields using gas that's stranded, uh, has no access to, to get to market, no pipeline access. Um, and so that that is, energy without a market and so we come up and create the market and the market's just very cheap uh because nobody else is there's no competition there to buy that energy source beyond that i mean there's many things obviously there's global supply chain issues right now so obviously we have the mass migration of hash rate out of china attempting to move to the west in countries all around the world and while while that's happening you have people scrambling on the back end here in the united states and other areas of the world to build out infrastructure that would be able to take on that hash rate. So that's another factor is, is that physical infrastructure needed to facilitate the, the flow of electricity to these ASICs. Um, and so you, you're seeing a lot of people build out substations right now, but that takes lead time, 12 to 18 months in a lot of, a lot of instances, particularly here in the United States. Um, uh, for us, Great American Mining, we, we had to build shipping containers and uh, electrical engineering uh, in the containers, and that has a, a lead time getting all those raw materials and putting them together uh, that's sort of extending with the supply chain issues. So that's another variable you have to consider. And then obviously the ASICs are very scarce, uh, and they're, the price is very reflexive too. The Bitcoin price as the Bitcoin price goes up, so the the price of the ASICs is there essentially like these physical options on on physical Bitcoin, or excuse me, on future Bitcoin. Um, and so there's a bunch of moving parts and trying to build a business model and, and an execution plan with all those things in consideration is is probably the best way to describe the day to day thinking in a mining company.
the most interesting thing that came up to me in, in researching for this podcast was that uh, Bitcoin mining fundamentally changes the incentive mechanisms of not just the these like microcosms of energy, but the entire energy grid of America, as well as the entire oil and gas industry. So can you guys just expand on, I mean, maybe let's let's do deep dives into, we could go with the grid, we could go with oil and gas. Maybe Marty, let's start with oil and gas. Like, can you just get deeper into what you're actually working on? What flaring is, the problem, and, and let's do a deep dive into that. Yeah, so, Flaring. We'll start with flaring. When you poke a hole in the ground to get oil out, a lot of the times oil is not the only energy source to come out of the ground. Natural gas comes out as well. And uh, I think it's safe to say in all these operations, the, the operators mainly care about the oil, getting the oil out of the ground, and then getting that to market. Uh, it's the most profitable. The gas, a lot of times, right now, it's it's a little bit more appealing because the, the price of natural gas is drifting higher. However, like, throughout most of the history of the shale industry here in the United States and even in other uh, oil and gas markets around the world, gas has just been seen as a, a nuisance byproduct that is just something you have to deal with while you're extracting oil out of the ground and getting that to market. Um, and so when you IP a well, you, you poke a hole in the ground, you're getting the oil out, and a bunch of gas is coming out, and that gas just leaking or venting, which a lot of producers do around the world, uh, is arguably uh, considerably more uh, additive to the greenhouse gas emissions than than actually burning that gas, combusting it into CO2 instead of just letting the methane uh, leak into the atmosphere. And so that's that's what flaring is for, is, is if you can't get that gas to market to be a better environmental steward. Uh, you, you combust the gas and you flare it so that it, it turns into CO2 and so you're leaking CO2 instead of methane. And so there, in different areas of the country, there's different flaring uh, regulations. Uh, and so depending on where you are, how regulators look at flaring differs in Texas. You'll see a lot of these oil men like it is my God given right to flare gas. Like I will flare if I want to. Um, and so there's a lot of flaring in Texas uh, and there's not many repercussions yet, though there are some uh, laws on the horizon that may begin to attempt to curb flaring in Texas. In North Dakota, they're sort of a few steps ahead on the regulatory side, and they have very strict flaring regulations. And so if a producer flares a certain amount in a certain uh, window of time, they have to shut down the, the production on their their site, uh, not only the gas, but the oil. So they're highly incentivized to figure out a solution to their, their flaring. Uh, and that's where we predominantly operate in Great American Mining is because North Dakota, due to the regulatory environment, creates a very low-hanging fruit where producers are highly incentivized to uh, engage with us because they want to reduce their flaring. And so we'll show up and we'll say, hey, we'll buy that gas you're flaring for uh, a small amount of money compared to what you would be able to get if you had pipeline access and you were able to sell it to market at Henry Hub pricing or, or some other index pricing on natural gas. Um, and so we're, we're there. We're, we're playing this arbitrage game. It's regulatory arbitrage and it's arbitrage on the ability for certain uh, pockets of natural gas being able to get to market. So if it, uh, we call it stranded non-rival energy, that's what we're searching for uh, because it allows us to basically create a moat where we're the only buyer of that NAC gas, there's no potential for any other buyers to, to compete with us because you can't get it to market and nobody else is really willing to, to show up on the well pad. 
uh, create some piping infrastructure, bring on generators, uh, and actually maintain that stuff uh, in the wild. There's nothing really as profitable as Bitcoin mining that would incentivize other actors to to do that those types of activities. And so when it comes to oil and gas and flaring, that's sort of the mechanism of it. How will it affect the industry in the long run? I think it's going to be massive. The amount of flaring in North Dakota and Texas alone in 2019, if all those flares were to be uh, sort of converted into electricity that was used to mine Bitcoin, you, you would like quintuple to 7x the the network hash rate on the Bitcoin network if the ASICs were available and it, hypothetically if you could do that. Um, and so that's a lot of natural gas, a lot of potential electricity uh, and positive economic uh, activity that can be brought to market. And, and so how does this play out in the long run? I believe oil and gas producers as well as other energy producers are going to be the biggest miners in the world just because they have all this literally wasted energy um, that, that now has a, a, a mechanism by which it can be turned into a profitable revenue stream on site uh, almost immediately. So do I understand it correctly? Let me make sure I understand it correctly. And then I have a follow up question, which is, so you, you know, you're, you're drilling for, for oil, basically, and you, you get all the oil, but a byproduct of that is there's also natural gas that's leaking out. Natural gas is very bad for the environment. Uh, I'm assuming it's like much heavier than CO2 or something like that. It, and uh, but it also releases that that natural gas is, is energy. It's another form of energy. So what you'll you'll do is you'll go in there and you'll basically buy the this excess form of energy, which is the natural gas from these folks, and use that energy to mine Bitcoin. Correct? Exactly. Yep. Okay. My question then is if I am a oil and gas producer and I see this and you're basically making this arbitrage play, they're saying, oh, they're selling, I don't, I don't know the price of natural gas. I'm going to make a number up. They're selling it for 20 bucks. You can make 80 bucks off of that. Then why are they selling it to you? Why don't they just set up mining rigs? I think eventually they will. In the long term, they'll develop the expertise, the uh, understanding and the, the drive to do it. However, right now, it's not in their purview and it's not in their... Uh, their business models yet. Uh, it's not easy to build these shipping containers and and actually execute and make sure that they have high enough uptime that it actually makes economical sense to mine in the field. Uh, on top of that, it's it's a pretty significant uh, initial capital outlay. Again, the ASICs are very expensive um, to fill. One container can can be upwards of a million dollars, depending on the price of ASICs. At any given point in time, and if you want to make a considerable dent in your flare or the consumption of your stranded gas, it's going to be uh, a pretty heavy lift on the capital side. And the shale industry has gone through uh, the ringer over the last decade. Um, and so many producers are, are risk averse at this particular point in time. Um, and, and yeah, there's it's multi, many factors. Some are beginning to expend the capital and the the financial capital and intellectual capital to, uh, to invest in this stuff because they, they do understand that it is probably here to stay and, and will be a significant part of their business models in the future. Um, yeah, I, I just think we're at a particular point in Bitcoin's history and the oil and gas industry's understanding of Bitcoin mining specifically where it's just, it's just uh, very early. Um, yeah, I think in the future, these these producers, a lot of them will be mining on behalf of themselves and building out this stuff. They have some of the smartest engineers in the world already working on their, their oil and gas operations. I don't think it is a big stretch to to assume that uh, if the, the Bitcoin 
incentive becomes high enough that they'll they'll divert some of those engineering resources to figure out how to build mining operations. I mean, it makes you think like, why sell the natural gas at all? <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like, uh, the the Bitcoin. It's, I tweeted this out the other day, but Bitcoin mining it essentially just creates a price floor on all energy across the world. And so, if they wanted to create a higher price floor for their natural gas, um, they would they would mine with it and basically say, "Hey, I have this customer in the Bitcoin network that's paying me this much. Um, if you're going to buy my gas at market for residential uh, electricity, it's going to be this price." And that's so. You said like natural gas at twenty dollars, people would would. Uh, would be very excited about that. It's right around like five dollars right now. Um, historically, uh, over the last like five to ten years, before twenty twenty one, it was hovering between like two and four dollars. So it's five dollars for for a what? What what's the measurement? Uh, an MCF a million cubic. An feet. MCF, and so so they sell it for it used to be two, then four, five bucks. Great American Mining can make how much from buying it for five bucks? What is the arbitrage play? If you can share that. Um, I said million cubic feet. It's milli cubic feet, which is a thousand cubic feet, just to get my semantics right. Uh, so we wouldn't buy that that gas. That's too much for us. We can't play index pricing and 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 um and and have like an, a, a profitable mining operation. Um, so that's why we go for the stranded, where it doesn't have any market available. So instead of paying five bucks, we're like, hey, we'll pay you eighty cents an MCF. Um, and that allows us to drive our all in electricity costs to a very competitive rate. Um, with that being said, the, again, there's like many, many, uh, much nuance here. Like the, the value per MCF that is derived from mining Bitcoin is uh, orders of magnitude higher than $5. It's just whether or not um, it remains profitable during the bear market. So you just have to set yourself up uh, and keep your all in electricity price as low as possible in anticipation of a Bitcoin bear market so that when that does happen, you don't want to be caught paying $5 in MCF because it's just going to be unprofitable. Yeah. All right, Harry, back over to you, my friend. Um, let's talk about the grid in general. Uh, you guys have aptly named, I love that you guys named your company, I think it's a grid infrastructure, if I uh, remember that, instead of grid mining. And you guys, I mean, the more I learned about your company over the last few years, like you're an infrastructure company, you're not a mining company, um, is is my understanding. Um, and I guess the nuance there is that like you guys seem to have a fundamental belief that um, Bitcoin mining is really just an infrastructure play for America and that, you know, the entire grid, the the entire grid in America, power grid, will be tied into Bitcoin mining in some sense or another. So I don't know if that's too far fetched of a thing to say, but I'd love to just hear your thoughts on Bitcoin mining and how it ties into the entire grid in in America. And maybe actually, because I'm I have no idea how the grid works, I would actually just love to understand how the grid works and what what in the world the the grid even means. So maybe maybe we could start there. Yeah. Um... For the next, you know, three to five minutes, I'm only going to describe the grid Love with it. one eye, not two eyes. And your company is grid with Just, two eyes. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So I'm I'm describing the general purpose grid, not the not the company grid. Um, number one is it's not um, it's not one thing. So in the U.S., we we have this patchwork. Uh, of of sort of balkanized energy markets that stitch together that provide the level of quality of service and uptime that we you know that we come to enjoy as a modern society. So that's 
that's a, a definitional thing. And that's important because the grid is governed by two forces. The first force is electrical engineering. The second force is contracts. Those are the two things that make, make the thing work or not work when it does work and doesn't work. And, and let's even just take one step back beyond that and say that energy density per capita is this incredibly important human flourishing quality of life metric that we should be tracking higher over time. You know, we are quality of life maximalists, not consumption minimalists. And the really good news is that with the right technologies, um, we don't have to, we don't have to compromise. You know, there's this idea that like, we're going to run out or we're running out of time or running out of energy, or it's all going to go away. No calling bullshit, right? That's not how these systems work. Like we have every opportunity for a tremendous amount of abundance, both in terms of energy availability and in quality of life that will in, in no way, um, or at least in, in very minimized ways affect the environment around us. So we can have it all. Um, and anyone who tells you that we can't, um, is, you know, is, is a defeatist in my opinion. So that's the, the underpinning of, of that. Then we get into like, how do these things work? So let's just, let's just go through a very, very simple model of like, how does energy get generated, transmitted and delivered? Um, big turbine spins around a magnet makes the electricity. The electricity then gets stepped up to what's called a transmission voltage. So you move the energy to a very, very high voltage. So you can transmit it over a long distance with less loss. You shoot it over wire. Then it goes into a big complicated set of coils called a substation. The substation brings that voltage down. And then there's another you know, series of transmissions and distributions that bring it to your house. So your microwave or light switch or air conditioner works. Right. That's a very, very simple description of like generation, transmission, delivery, consumption. And is there, is there energy slippage along the way? Mm -hmm. A tremendous amount of it. Okay. So the farther you get out on the, on this cord, like the more energy you lose or something like that. Yeah. So like Got you it. can't really shoot energy further than like 500 miles. Um, so there's a use it or there's, a, there are two use it or lose it components to energy. That's what I was trying to get at is this use it or lose it component, which my, it, 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 it seems like to me, if you have like this use it or lose it component. So, okay. So the wind turbine spins, you generate, again, I don't even know how to talk about electricity, 100 units of electricity, right? And the people in your town, basically it seems like the, the electricity mm -hmm. providers have to prep for maximum usage. I, I would assume. And so they, you know, they say the town has a hundred people. We need to exactly. create a hundred units of electricity. Well, 10 people are on vacation. So really there's only 90 units of electricity being used in that, in that little town. And now you have 10 excess units of electricity. And is this like the most simplistic at the most simplistic version? Like, does that exist? Is that the model kind of? Yeah. So the way that the way that the model works is you basically, you basically have to design your system to be able to handle like the coldest day of the last 10 or 20 years or the hottest day of the last 10 or 20 years, right? Cause you can't, you can't install new transmission lines when you think you're going to have a bad summer, you know, it doesn't work that way. So you've got to engineer for these sort of edge cases and then roughly map supply to demand as time goes on, manage the peaks a little bit. You know, a lot of this is done contractually um, and economically, not mechanically or, or electrically. So, you know, you'll say, you know, we're going to, we're going to drop in, you know, a tariff for this period of the day during this season. 
and that'll discourage some consumption and, you know, or it'll pay for kind of the overage, you know, that we think we're going to have to do. So when you sign up to be a utility customer, there's actually like a pretty complicated quality of service contract that's attached to your, to your endpoint. Let's just say that you we're in New York. We've got, you know, a, a incredibly foolish political regime that decides to deprecate a nuclear plant that's supplying 25% of New York's hey, reasons. electricity reasons. for no reason, even though that asset is fully paid off. For, for those who don't, um, for those who don't understand what the inside joke is here, can you, in, including myself, because I see you guys laughing. I know nothing about energy. Get, explain to me why you're laughing here. So in New York City, there is a nuclear plant outside uh, outside of the city um, called Indian Point. It has historically, um, you know, it's ha- it had some challenges about ten, you know ten to twelve years ago. It has since had an incredibly strong uh, productive track record for safety and quality of service. Um, New York decided to shutter a fully functioning power plant because they didn't like nuclear. They don't because because nuclear is essentially the reasoning. It is a hundred percent carbon free, as all nuclear power is. It supplied twenty five percent of New York's power. Nuclear power has the highest capacity factor of almost any generation source, of over ninety three percent when it's managed well, relative to wind or, or solar, for instance, which is in the mid twenties. Right, so mid twenties capacity factor, nuclear ninety three. When you take a test, do you want to get a twenty five percent right, or do you want to get a ninety three percent right? Right, this is this is very basic. Um, so, so what they did was they they removed this incredibly stable piece of baseload that is designed to perform in almost any conditions, um, regardless of supply and demand. So, when you sign a contract with with Con Edison. National Grid, you know, whoever your your you know utility service provider is, they have a contractual obligation to serve you power. So let's just say that Con Edison generates 100 units of electricity all the time, but the demand in their service territory is 110. What they have to do is go out to the other grid power markets, one eye, not two eyes, um, and buy that power from those other power markets and and route it through their systems to deliver to you. They have a contractual obligation to do that. That is incredibly expensive to buy that power. Those are the power, you know, those are the hours when you see power markets blow through all the normal pricing. They go they go full GameStop, for instance. Um, and and so because of that, there's a lot of pressure put on these utilities to generate enough power to not have to do that. It's worth over-engineering their systems to avoid those scenarios with a reasonable degree of certainty. So things like, you know, things like nuclear power are great, a great, what we call base load, whereas renewables are, are more of a variable load power source. Um, and so, you know, the, the way that these systems get designed is that they're over-engineered. There's excess megawatt hours available in the systems. They're available on a, on a, va- a variable basis. And so what the Bitcoin miner gets to do is become this incredibly new um, and unusual type of customer, right? So when I enter into a conversation with a power provider, my goal is for them to walk away feeling like they've never met a better customer than me. I take what they don't want, what they used to never be able to monetize. I shut down and I, and I spin up at, as needed. 
And all I'm asking is for an incredibly competitive power price, right? So I am this unicorn customer and, and that's the goal. And that's why you're able to achieve these, these really exciting unlocks is that the utilities out there and the energy generation sources out there, they've never met a customer as good as a Bitcoin miner. So I produce hundred megawatts of electricity, only 90 of it gets used. I've got these 10 extra megawatts and nobody's using them. Nobody's buying them. It just is, you know, goes to waste basically Bitcoin miner, grid g-r-i-i-d comes along and says i'll take those 10 megawatts off your hands and i'll pay you for them the the megawatt producer says holy shit i can't believe this kind of customer exists this is amazing and you guys turn that excess energy into bitcoin correct into into revenue for us in the form of bitcoin revenue for the energy generator in the form of newly sold energy and for the five days a year that they need those 10 we structure a contract that says we'll give them back. The example that I use that, that hits home for people is imagine you live in, you know, you live in the 1800s where you cook dinner and half your dinner guests don't show up. And so you cook twice as much food, but refrigerators don't exist yet. So you can't actually save the food for anyone else. We show up and we're the refrigerator. Will, we're, we're cutting this clip up. Let's put it up on Twitter. Like that's a great zinger line right there. <laughs> You've been prepping that one in front of the mirror. <laughs> you know, but, but, and, but I, and I use the 1800s as the example because it's literally that different than anything these people have ever seen before. They've never met a customer like this. Marty knows exactly the same thing in the oil field. Like no one's coming out there and saying, let me buy your gas. You don't have to build any pipeline to route it anywhere. All I need to do is have like a 15 by 15 square foot plot in the that back. And I'm going to monetize this thing that is like a total liability otherwise. And it's going to help us fix the Henry Adams curve too, which is, uh, which is, that's the other, like obviously with um, climate debate and all that, everything that's going on right now, I think something that's been, very much acutely made very apparent to me uh, over the last few years how much I didn't understand the energy markets, the importance of electricity, the importance of energy before diving deep down the Bitcoin mining hole. Um, and Bitcoin using these stranded energy uh, resources um, and, and creating a market uh, for these energy sources and creating electricity using those energy resources is actually extremely beneficial for humanity because it increases the, the production of electricity. And if you, you look at a historical chart of electricity production and just overall human well-being, they, they correlate very tightly with each other. And over the last 50 years, somehow in the 70s, we, we got off uh, the track of, of, of uh, increasing electricity production uh, and it's sort of baselined over the last five decades. And I think Bitcoin will help get that curve going back up. And I think people really need to, people think that's a bad thing. Um, but we really need to drive home uh, the fact that it's a very good thing. Increased electricity production is very, very good for humans. Right, like these are, these are very basic, like, I mean, you know, you can, you can take the abstracted view of it, which basically like, if you correlate um, like energy density per capita, if you if you correlate that number against infant mortality, nutrition, longevity, um, GDP per capita, like all of the things that are like the the biomarkers of a, of a healthy society, um, all of them are are causally related to energy density per capita. 
the client, I mean, actually, it hasn't come up as much in the past few months, but obviously there's a huge topic earlier this year, right, was the energy impact of Bitcoin. So like, and I don't want, I actually don't want to spend too much time on it, but like when you two hear that argument, what, like, what's the, what's the, you're sitting down at a dinner table, you're at dinner with a journalist who like, you don't want to go too deep into this conversation, but like, they say that Bitcoin's bad for the environment. Like, what's your like, oh, yeah, no, I respect that, but like, here's my response to that. Marty just stands up and walks away from the dinner. I'm nah, I mean, again, I think it just highlights the point I just made, which is like people just don't understand energy and electricity, energy extraction, electricity production, and delivery systems, and how important they are. It's been discussed ad nauseum over the years, but it's odd that there's this moralization of electricity production and consumption by certain uh, certain businesses, Bitcoin miners being the business that gets pointed out um, most frequently recently and then like just demonstrably it's it's false like the it's what we do at great american mining we have methane vacuums and we're consuming energy that would literally be set on fire uh, if we did not show up and be completely wasted so it's just not founded in any semblance of truth uh, bitcoin miners is the pure incentives again to drive that all that all in electricity cost down as low as possible literally demands them to go find wasted energy or stranded energy and, and make a market for it because those are the only markets that provide uh, a viable uh, business execution plan for for these miners it's just, it's honestly like jason it's a super challenging interaction for me talking um, like someone who works in really sales not, before <laughs> you, i try to pre pre-qualify my lead whenever i can which which, which um, which for me is like, listen, like, are you open to having your mind changed? Are you open to learning something about an industry that you probably don't know anything at all about? Um, because if the answer is no, and like, you're just going to try to beat me with your, with your climate stick, um, like, I don't need that. Right. Like, like, let's just be real. Like, like the data's on my side, all the evidence is on our side, all of like, we have, we now have, you know, half a decade plus of incredible track record of Bitcoin being this this unassailable force for good in all of the energy markets that it touches, not to mention all the financial markets that it touches. So, you know, that's the reality. All right, so let's go one step deeper though, and then we'll get away from this topic, which is I say, I say yes, Harry, I do want to have my mind, blow my mind, Harry, change my mind, all right? And you say, what? Yeah, my, my response then becomes like, can we agree that society is better when we have access to more energy as a as a, a group of two people invested in human flourishing, right? Like energy is fundamentally a tool of human flourishing. If we can agree on that, we can say, great. So that means that what we need to do is, is spend our societal capital um, tracking towards the most economically um, exciting, abundant version of the future that we can achieve. Is that achieved through a government mandated process or is that achieved through free and open markets innovating into the future? Right? And and then, you know, maybe maybe some people will go will go government, maybe some people will go, you know, free and open markets innovating into the future. Um, if we end up in the in that kind of camp, then we say great. So what Bitcoin mining does is it adds another exactly like Marty said, another floor setting buyer of power. And so you're introducing a new buyer of energy into markets that previously didn't have a buyer like this. So what will naturally happen? More power will get bought. What does more power getting bought mean? It means more revenue for energy generators and utilities. What does that, where does that revenue go? 
energy generators and utilities are going to invest those dollars in building better systems and building better sources of generation. Like the, the beautiful thing about economies is that the money doesn't stay still and that my, you know, my accounts payable is their accounts receivable. Their accounts receivable is actually their R&D budget or their upgrade budget or, you know, some other incredibly high utility function of that money eventually. So, you know, so it's this incredible thing that when you turn the economic wheel, um, not only am I generating Bitcoin and therefore um, profit, they are generating revenue that gets reinvested in their systems. And so the whole system improves because the pie is, is organically growing through, you know, through a market driven solution. So Bitcoin creates this, this really exciting new market dynamic within energy markets. And, and because of that, there's a growing pie and the growing pie results in better outcomes. I honestly probably stole this from one of you guys knowing, knowing me, but like the thing that I bring up at the dinner parties when I get asked is like, do you believe that Bitcoin is valuable or not? Right. Because you probably believe that Google is valuable. Uh, you probably believe that Apple is valuable. They consume massive amounts of energy, but there you find your iPhone to be really valuable and you find Google search tools to be very valuable and Gmail to be valuable. So you don't criticize for Google for the amount of energy that they consume. The problem here is not Bitcoin's energy consumption. It's that you find you don't think there's any value in Bitcoin. Um, and, and, and I definitely stole this from one of you guys. But, you know, Bitcoin also has the most transparent energy uh, markets and like consumption record in the world. It's all a lot of it is on chain, right? You've got you can literally see the hash rate changing and see all this kind of stuff. You there's no there's no database where I can see how much uh, consumption the the Apple headquarters uh, electricity is cons like taking up, right? So I, I'm, Harry, I'm sure I stole that one from you, but you know I think uh, those are the two main points I bring up. I think that's very very much the core of their argument against bitcoin energy it's like they bitcoin provides any value and it's just again another thing that's demonstrably false you can you know, i'd love for them to go to like venezuela or argentina or iran or nigeria and tell people using bitcoin that it doesn't work and provides no utility you can come to me it's provided me an immense amount of utility throughout the, the eight years that i've been following it I go further too and just say like they just want to tell you what to do you know like these are these are people who like fundamentally want to like put put a boot on your throat sometimes um and and tell you what you are and aren't allowed to do with your economic utility and and you know and, and your most precious resource which is time right like they don't have that right and and you know that doesn't mean that you don't have an obligation to be you know a good global citizen and a good you know good member of society and 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 all of that you know i think you do have an obligation to be i'm going to uh we have this new podcast researcher who joined and he, uh, he shared this thing from 1921. It was Henry Ford. I'm going to read this quick thing. Henry Ford, by building the world's greatest power plant here on the Tennessee River, expects to eliminate gold as the basis of world wealth and substitute it for something different, units of power. And by doing this, he said war would cease for gold is the cause of war. The title of the uh, newspaper article, again, 1921, Ford would replace gold with energy currency to stop wars. I want to ask you guys, Henry Ford had this idea we could eliminate wars if we replace gold with energy power and this currency based on energy. Do you, do you guys think that Bitcoin could be considered, you know, 100 years later, 
could Bitcoin be considered in a kind of a real world implementation of Henry Ford's hypothesized energy currency? It's part of my pitch as well. Like <laughs> Henry Ford wasn't the only one. Buckminster Fuller had an idea like this. I believe uh, John Nash as well had a similar idea. And uh, yeah, not until Bitcoin was launched was there an ability to implement something like that. And I think I think it's true. I think it is the implementation that, that brings that idea to fruition and playing that idea out why would a currency backed by energy lead to less wars um as opposed to to gold backed currency i think it's just because energy is more pervasive than gold and so the the ability for more individuals to participate in that monetary system uh, just in their own locale uh, just naturally will lead to less physical conflict because you're not literally meeting up at a at a physical location to fight over gold there's energy is abundant and so you can, you can just take advantage of the abundant energy plug an asic in contribute and have a, a fair shake at the global monetary system uh, whether you're in new york or nigeria yeah i don't have an opinion about the war piece of it um at this point i haven't thought enough about it but um but in terms of the energy money piece, um, yeah, it's exactly right. Like what, what Bitcoin does is it makes um, energy like fungible and costlessly transmissible, right? That's what it fundamentally does. It takes, you know, it takes all of these raw energy inputs um, and it crystallizes them into, into sats and you get all of the benefits and attributes of Bitcoin, but on this incredible, you know, energy uh, uh, underpinning as the sort of raw material input, right? So the way that, the way that we think about our Bitcoin mining operations is that they're actually just Bitcoin factories. And rather than putting in like hard materials, uh, like our, our ongoing material inputs is just power. It's power and labor, you know, and, and that's, it's reflected in the way that we think about our income statement. It's reflected in the way that we think about, um, you know, the strategy around power acquisition, um, some of it's related to our our strategy around capex and ha and hash acquisition. It, it's a different a different idea a little bit. You know, we think that you know every Bitcoin mine is just a Bitcoin factory, and in one end goes the energy and the labor, and out the other end comes the Bitcoin. Um, switching gears a little bit, we've already started to see hash rate begin to recover since the um, since the Chinese uh, mining exodus. What like what are you guys seeing on the ground here? Are are the miners actually setting up in America? Is it net benefit for Bitcoin? Is it actually not as good for Bitcoin because it's centralizing all the power in America? Like, what are you guys seeing on the ground here? What are your thoughts on this whole exodus thing in general? I think it was a, a very important stress test of the network and the resiliency of just the the uncoordinated nature of, of Bitcoin in general. The fact that around 50%, arguably more, came off the network in a very you know, short period of time uh, the, some of those ASICs were able to relocate and plug in, and the hash rate has recovered. It's not exactly, it's not at all-time highs, but difficulty is is recovering. Last I checked, it was like 30% above the, the trough from earlier this summer, so that's very encouraging to see. Uh, as to whether or not all that hash rate's settling in America, I don't think that's the case. I think a lot of people are going to LATAM, Eastern Europe, uh, in other parts, I think this is a very good thing for the geographical distribution of hash rate. And even more encouraging is that there are rumors coming out of China that some operations have covertly turned back on within China's borders. So that uh, sort of validates the fact that Bitcoin uh, 
is extremely censorship resistance, even if one of the strongest nation states and superpowers in the world uh, is attempting to, to ban it in some capacity. The fact that some Chinese miners are plugging back in and still mining despite the ban uh, is very bullish and, and proves that Bitcoin is hard to kill. Harry, you uh, you seeing the same thing? I'm sure it's made your guys' business a little more uh, competitive as well. Yeah, it's been a great, it's been a great, really interesting kind of um, disruption. You know, num- number one on the revenue side, like it sure it sure boosted our performance, right? Like we're getting, a, we didn't have to plug anything in, and we got a bunch more Bitcoin. So, you know, from from that standpoint, like no complaints. You know, from a, a, a hardware migration perspective, yeah, I think that like. A lot of it's leaving China. The U.S. is the largest beneficiary, but not the only beneficiary. Um, you know, my my expectation is like the, you know, the the more hash in in stronger court systems, the better, right? So I think like the you know you know the the more that hash is operating within you know strong property right environments, um, the better off we all are, and the better off that the Bitcoin network is. You know. On top of that, though, I, I I do think that it is this really incredible, you know, if you think that sort of each four year cycle, there's like a, a huge, huge, huge network related event. Um, you know, the last time around, it was the block size debate. And this time around, we, we very well may look back and say that the great hash migration that we're seeing is as is as massive and as important um, because it's proving out Bitcoin's security model. It's proving out this thesis that there is truly a decentralized consensus mechanism that's driven by miners, driven by nodes, driven by users, um, and that the, you know, the fidelity of the UTXO set um, is so central and core to the system that we're dedicating our lives um, and our and our resources to, uh, you know, that this this type of stress test, you know, kind of happened quietly, but I think that it's a massive, massive deal. The last thing I wanna to talk to you guys about is Lightning Network. A uh, ton of questions when I said that I was talking to you guys, got a ton of probably 20, 30 DMs saying, ask Marty about the Lightning Network. I actually have a question uh, for Harry first, which is, um, I think it was you on a podcast with maybe Preston Pish talked about the light, the total addressable market for Lightning Network and ooh, maybe it was someone else besides Preston, but you basically made this comparison. You said, look, when I, when you, 20 years ago, if you think about the market for um, like calling rides, ride sharing basically, um, or like ride services, it's it's to and from the airport, right? And you never would have thought that it's going everywhere in my day-to-day life, but what ended up happening is you brought down the price, you, you increased the convenience. Um, and so I wanna ask you first just about what do you think, or maybe both you guys, like what do you think the total addressable market of Lightning users is here? I, I love that example. Um, I think that like socially enabled technology phenomena, like are these are these fundamental market changing things where markets are all artificially small. Markets are all everywhere in the entire world artificially small because good tech unlocks new participants and new and new forms of interaction. So like cars are a great one with, you know, with, with Uber and, and, you know, what, what was Uber actually competing with car ownership? What is car ownership actually competing for transportation and commuting? Like these are huge, huge swaths of our time. You know, when you think about all the data around how much time people spend in cars, like that's actually the addressable market for 
a service like Uber, and then it's going to grow it, right? Like people who used to not use cars are going to start using cars for the first time because there's a technological unlock. You know, same thing with um, things like Netflix. Another great example. What is Netflix's true competitor? Sleep. That's who Netflix is competing with. And so, you know, when you get a really, 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 really big order of magnitude upgrade around any technological phenomena, the addressable market like turns out to be hilariously larger than you thought. So with lightning, right? Like I, I kind of think that we've been in this like bizarre trough around micropayments for a long time. And that, you know, what we try, you know, we tried to make micropayments happen, you know, you know, like the mean girls, like quote, like stop trying to make fetch happen. Like stop trying to make micropayments happen was like this, this internet, you know, truism for a long time. I think it's just wrong, right? Like, I think it's stupid and I think it's wrong. I think that it's like fundamentally short-sighted around not having good enough tech to make it happen. I think that we we are willing to engage on a, an ongoing economic basis with each other as long as the tech is really good and the UX is awesome and and the opportunity to monetize all of the interactions with the good or the service um, is is provided to us in an exciting way. Like, think you know, things like impervious AI, Things like, you know, you know, what can be used for the, like, what is the use case for the lightning network? Every single packet of information that flows over the internet. Marty, can you tell us about Zion, Sphinx, Stripe, just some of the actual like uh, tools that you're using on the lightning network? Maybe tell us about uh, streaming sats on the podcast and we can wrap it up in that way. Cause that's a fun, exciting story of technology actually uh, uh, and how you're using it. Yeah. I mean, completely. We- co-sign what Harry said what is the total addressable market we don't know because we literally cannot fathom the applications that that will be built Uh, that's how early we are and so Sphinx and Zion hooks up to or I don't know if Zion's podcasting 2.0 compatible but uh, we'll focus on Sphinx and another app like Breeze or Fountain app which are podcast Breeze is a wallet that has a podcast player in it Sphinx is a chatting app that has a podcast player in it Fountain is a pure podcast player that connects to Podcasting 2.0. Focus on Podcasting 2.0. What that allows me to do is to embed a public Lightning Network address into my podcast RSS feed. So when I send my podcast out to via RSS feed to all the platforms, whether it be iTunes, uh, Spotify, Overcast, uh, these new apps like Sphinx and Breeze and Fountain are able to pick up that same RSS feed, uh, but instead within their applications, they take advantage of the fact that I have included a, a Lightning Network address in that feed, and so they can interact with that address, and they allow their users to essentially send that address sats, little amounts of Bitcoin, as they listen to the podcast. And so they can do that in multiple ways. They can decide, hey, I want to stream uh, a 10 sats per minute listen to the podcast to the, the lightning address associated with the RSS feed. Uh, they can say, hey, I don't want to stream any sats per minute listen, but as I listen, I do want the ability to just send sats to this address if I like what Marty's saying. Um, and so that just opens up a, a whole new avenue through which to monetize content, uh, which again is, uh, we can't even fathom the types of incentive systems that will be built on on top of this alone, um, you can think you can apply it outside of podcasts too. Like imagine if you're a music artist and you're just tired of getting raped by the um, the, the uh, record labels and, and you want to go independent and you want to be able to monetize that 
as efficiently as possible and, and pay the people that are helping you create that album hypothetically like each song uh, you can get a lightning address from the producer from your bandmates uh, you have yours and um, maybe there's a, a, an app that's distributing your your music on behalf of you and can include their lightning address as well and as users uh, consume that content maybe you put like a micro payment paywall uh, to access it and you can automatically pay everybody the artist the producer the band the the app that is uh, syndicating that media um, and so just just in that one this one little vertical and content monetization whether it be podcasting music written word the ability to uh, monetize that with micropayments is is now enabled and, and very easy with the lightning network it's going to create like harry mentioned impervious.ai they're basically creating an api that allows people to add lightning functionality to to apps on the web and i think with that really high they had a hackathon a couple of weeks ago and it really highlighted to me that uh, probably the the biggest apps are going to start on the edges uh, the one app of that hackathon that, that really was i was like wow was they were a, a team bitswarm i believe was able to create a flow in which file seeders on BitTorrent could get paid for seeding files and holding files on their servers so that's like one of the um one of the I don't want to say fatal flaw because it's not fatal at all because BitTorrent's still around, but one of the things that has potentially held it back is there's no economic incentive to uh, basically seed files on BitTorrent and you're not going to be able to get paid for it via the traditional um, payment rails, whether it be Visa or MasterCard because BitTorrent is syndicating copyrighted content. However, they can't stop the Lightning Network, can't stop Bitcoin, and so you can just literally drop Lightning functionality into BitTorrent, which will incentivize the seeding of files. So I think if that BitSwarm team is successful, we're, we're going to find like a, a whole new resurgence in BitTorrent-like applications and uh, file sharing that, that uh, is more robust and more censor, censorship resistance. So those are just a few examples. Uh, like, like Perry said, it, it's going to disrupt uh, the packeting uh, flow uh, at the internet protocol layer and like that is insane to think of, like it opens up this utility that has never existed for uh, a plethora of applications like developers accessing apis and stuff like that you can just tokenize access and uh, you can get granular access via lightning you can just pay as you you access those apis and so make everything more cost efficient as well already ben said it best can't stop lightning can't stop bitcoin thanks guys Harry, this is awesome. Marty, this is awesome. Marty, enjoy the beach, my friend. Uh, Harry, enjoy... Uh... More work. <laughs> more work. Yeah, I know you're not... Uh, you look like you're in like an apartment somewhere going to uh, do like eight more calls today. So uh, enjoy uh, whatever you guys are doing today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a good time and uh, we'll do it again soon. Thank you, Jason. Thanks, Jason. All right, take care, guys. 